Welcome to the 67th episode of It Wasn't Me, a true crime podcast where we chat about murder. I'm Mercedes. And I am Cindy. Thank you for listening to last week's episode as we discuss the horrific murder of Adriana Zimmerman. Forewarning, our show is often horrifying and graphic, and we will use offensive language. So if you have kids, put them away for a while and join us for a murder. Also, we are passionate and always have been about true crime. But I must warn you, we might make jokes during this podcast and we will most definitely laugh. We will most definitely laugh. So would you like to learn more about us? You can do that by visiting our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com. There we have links to our social media pages. And we also have like contact us form. We've got a blog, all kinds of fun stuff on there. We also drop a new episode every Friday morning. So be sure to subscribe on your favorite platform so you don't miss out. And thanks for listening, guys. We really appreciate it. And if you are even slightly entertained by our Southern charm, please leave us a five-star rating along with a comment. And if you don't, you think we suck, please reach out to us. Let us know what you think we can do to improve. Also, spread the word. Recommend your, our podcast to your friends and family. Hey, and even your enemies. That's right. <laughs> What's up, Cindy? How are you? I'm good. Good, good. Good. Enjoying this beautiful weather we've got going on here. Yeah, it is. It's, it's getting a little warm. Mm-hmm. Yep. A little warmer than uh, I, I care for, but you know. <laughs> Already? Okay. Already, yeah. All okay. right. So, hey, you, um, you're keeping track of like comments and stuff, right? Yes. Some great information to share with me. Yes, we have. So we subscribe to something called Chartable Digest. Okay. And it tells us lots of different information so we have two new reviews and ratings that it says that they're both via apple podcast but they're not showing up when i look at our ratings through apple like through my like where i go and i listen to other podcasts i look at the ratings there you know when you can look at everyone's reviews or whatever all right neither one of these are listed there but so saying that it's there Yes. Very interesting. Well, but one of them, I noticed it when we went up Which from like, both good, right? Yes. <laughs> and <laughs> Tell me more. One, like, we'll say we had 47 ratings and then it went to 48 and there's nothing there, no comment or anything. And I was like, okay, but then this popped up and I was like, well, that must be 48. And then, then we have another one, but nothing's changed. So I don't know if they're getting lost somewhere or what, but so now this one, the first one that I'm going to tell you about is from February and it is a five-star rating and it says total true crime friend. And I love this podcast. I'm sad that I'm all caught up and have to wait a week for each new episode. I actually love the fact that you ladies can laugh and have a good time talking about these crazy crimes. Oh, that's so sweet. Yes. Okay. So that's Brandy. Oh, okay. Brandy's is. Um, I thought we shared brandies. Like, we did okay. share brandies. Okay. Brandies is from the United States. Hey, it's okay, so good. We love it. We love it. Yeah, yeah. It's Brandy. so good. We love it anyway. Okay, so then, so that means we have three, three okay. new ones, and um, I'm trying to find it, and I'm not finding. You say what well, you read? Oh, here we go. I found it. Okay. All right. This one is um, a five star reading, and this one's from March first. Says I just discovered this podcast. And it says, I'm just discovered this podcast and I'm hooked. I binge, the, I binge all the episodes. Great host and very easy to listen to. 
I feel that it's not much chit chat and a deep dive into the cases. Well done, girls. And that's from Lotus Wildflower, Great Britain. Ooh, thank you. I know. And then we received one on Monday, which was actually from this past Monday, March 16th. Yes. So I guess it's kind of like, this is when he left the rating. Okay. We just haven't seen it yet. Okay. Um, It just says, I really enjoy listening to your podcast. Quality content, very informative. And I don't see many podcasts with this focus. Keep it up. And that's Rhodey from the Philippines. Thank you, Rhodey. Oh, y'all, that's so sweet. Thank you. I appreciate them noticing that we do work so hard to get information. Yes. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. From March 29th, we were um, (laughs) Apple Podcast in New Zealand. We were number 245. Woo! Hey, I'll start there. I love that. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Hey. Yes. This is fun. It is nice to see that. Yeah, it is. And we were number 98 in Turkey. Okay. Moving up in the world. All right. All right. Well, are you ready? Did you hear my husband's music? No. Okay. I did not. Sorry. No worries. Okay. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. So I've been working on this one for a couple of weeks. It's, it got rather long. So I kind of um, shrunk a lot of the information, probably not spending as much quality time on telling the story as I should, but I'm going to start um, on the evening of June 24th, 1988. Okay. I'm not going to tell you how old I was then. <sighs> Miriam and Jeff Rice, they were a married couple, tucked their three-year-old James into bed that night, and then Jeff helped his wife Miriam tie on her running shoes. He put the leash on their dog, their Cocker Spaniel, and gave a little, you know, peck at the door, and she left for her nightly dog walk slash run. I'm sorry, he tied her shoes? Yes. Isn't that sweet? Yes. He helped her. Well, it's sweet, isn't it? I suppose. <laughs> this is something that they did a lot. Like she sh- would take the dog out every night. Like that was, she just came to enjoy that routine. So, yeah. You know, she was usually out 30 minutes, really no more than 45. But on that evening when she still hadn't returned after about an hour, Jeff, her husband was like really stressed out. He's like, no, this is not right. She should be home. He was so worried that he called the police. He ended up calling, you know, his parents, her parents. He called a few people in the neighborhood just to see if anybody heard from her, seen her. No. Wow. Police show up, you know, they take the, the report. And of course, you know, they're not a whole lot that can do really, but just look for her. So they kind of search, you know, they're driving around, they're searching that night with no luck. Became even more alarming the next day when around noon, her dog was found by a neighbor crouching, shaking under a car that was parked a couple blocks away from her home. A puppy dog. Little puppy. So, I mean, the dog is freaking out. Another neighbor came forward to the police and said, yeah, you know, I saw that dog around midnight in the same area. Mm. So it was just the dog that was seen around midnight. She had left the house somewhere between like 10 and 1030. And I even saw one report was like around 1130. It was pretty late. So where was Miriam? She didn't come home. Where is she? Jeff's very concerned. You know, she's still not home. And her family's very concerned. They live in Michigan. Jeff and Miriam live in South Bend, Indiana. Her parents and some of her siblings start driving to South Bend to help Jeff and help in the search for her. Five days later, on June 30th, she was still missing. Her Mm. dad 
Bill Paquette, his sons, and then one of his daughter's boyfriend, fiance, future son-in-law, put it that way. They decided, you know what? I just can't sit around anymore. I'm going to go look for her. Now, Packet, um, Packet, his name is spelled P-A-Q-U-E-T. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it's Packet, Paquet, uh, Paquet. I'm going to call him Packet. And I'm so sorry if I'm saying it wrong. So her dad, you know, the, and his sons, the, the future son-in-law, they're like, you know what? We, we just can't stand around. We can't stand around. We need to go search for Miriam. Yeah. Now, Paquet and his family, they were hunters. They're deer hunters. Their philosophy is a good deer hunter always tracks his wounded prey until it's found. You just track it until it's found. Yeah. This is how they felt about Miriam. So they actually went to where the dog was found and they started their search from there. They branched out. They tracked to the river and then to a sewer plant, which is across a culvert. And they didn't find anything on the way back, you know, they're kind of dispirited. And so they, you know, they each kind of went their separate way in this area. Bill, the dad was heading towards a a nearby cemetery. And he said that he was clasping his rosary in his hand. I mean, that's just heartbreaking to me. You know, they're praying, he's carrying Uh a rosary. He said that he was clasping his rosary in his hand when he heard Mark, his future son-in-law yell, oh my God, I found a body. And of course, it was his daughter. It was Mira. <sighs> so her lifeless body was only about three miles away from her home. And it was on an embankment hidden in foliage near Pinhook Lagoon, which is in Pinhook Park, kind of a recreational area where you go to camp, you can fish, and there's other outdoor wreck stuff, you know. So is this like an area where it might have been difficult for them to find her if the police were looking for her? Or were they not really maybe looking for her um i think that you know i don't know i didn't really i didn't really do a whole lot of research on the search itself um i do know that they did have like search parties neighborhoods neighbors searched and but you know i don't know if they searched that area and missed it that's a good question i don't know okay her dad immediately called police and of course they didn't have cell phones there so they had to go you know one of them went and called while the others were waiting they did some investigating on their own and you know i didn't look what Mr. Paquette did. I, I want to say he worked in a factory or something. I did read it, but mm-hmm. I mean, this guy knows some stuff. Like he's a smart man. He said that just by looking at the scene, he said that it was obvious that his daughter's killer hauled her there. Ugh. He said that her body had been dragged down a trail and it was placed so that her head was laying upon a log like it was a pillow. Um, he said that mm. one of her socks had come off of her foot about six feet away from her body. Her shirt and bra, along with an earring, were missing. The tire marks, it was obvious that they were there, but they had washed away in a rainstorm, but her drag marks were still there. Hmm. Okay. I was kind of thinking, okay, how are her drag marks there, but the tire marks washed away? But yeah, I'm not going to think too hard about it because it's, it's a rabbit hole. Anyway, her dad believed that she was forced into a car where she was violently, where she violently and loudly tried to fight off her attacker. Mm. Uh, He believed that the abductor tried to rape her, but he only managed to get her shirt and bra off of her. And he said that it looked like she'd been beaten to death with a baseball bat. And it was obvious to him that she fought until her death. He said that his daughter was strong, independent, and tough. So let me tell you a little bit about her. She was their eighth child, raised in a hardworking Catholic family of 13 children. Woo! right six girls and seven boys they grew up in Mackinac City Michigan of course they were raised the Catholic tradition she went to Catholic school and 
Catholic high school. When she graduated, she stuck with that Catholic education and enrolled at Aquinas College in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where she studied elementary education. She also met and I'm guessing fell in love with a guy named Jeff Rice. He was a student there. He was a model student and he was majoring in counseling. Uh, he actually was an RA, like a resident, what do they call it? Resident. Uh, oh yeah. Like, like the dorm person. Yes. After, of course, after they graduated, they both got jobs immediately in Grand Rapids. She got a job as an elementary teacher at an elementary school. And then he got a job at Aquinas College. Like they hired him as the director of counseling. You just graduate and get a job like that. It must be nice. Right? Jeez. (laughs) I mean, everything I read said great things about him being a model student and, um, you know, just a great counselor. So she was pursuing her master's degree. Uh, They were a professional couple. You know, they were dedicated to education and lifelong learning. They were involved in campus life. They were involved in the community. And they were involved in their church. And then in 1986, they had two huge life events. Um, First, they had their first child, James. Then Jeff actually got a job at Notre Dame University in the career. So that's more money, more opportunity. And so they left Grand Rapids. Impressive. Yeah. Yeah. They rented a cute little house in the historic Park Avenue neighborhood in South Bend. Um, They rented it from a professor who was on sabbatical and they quickly became involved in the community. And she volunteered in the 1987 Special Olympics and she chose not to go back to teaching. She dedicated all of her time to being a stay-at-home mom for the most part. She sold Mary Kay and she also was an aerobics instructor for a few classes each week. So that's supplementary income. Yeah. So she was very fit and very involved. And she's an active mom and she loved taking her dog out every night for this walk. So, you know, what was someone waiting for her that night? What happened to Miriam? Like what happened? Well, the autopsy showed that she died of multiple skull and body fractures that were caused by blunt force trauma. They believe that it was, it was something like a baseball bat. Hmm. Her dad said that her face, his, his daughter's face was so swollen and black and blue that he almost did not recognize her. Oh, and, and the autopsy showed that she was four months pregnant. So you asked why her, fa- her husband might've helped her with shoes. Yeah. That's sweet. That is sweet. But of course, you know, he's going to be the first suspect. Oh uh, yeah. yeah the husband is. always is right. Yeah. The spouse, right? the lover, the whomever. Mm-hmm. You know, Miriam's sister, they would call and talk to each other every now and then. They had just had a phone conversation the week before. It was, it was expensive to make long distance calls back then, you know. Um, it was. They had talked on the phone and Miriam had confided that she and Jeff had been arguing a lot lately. And her dad also thought, well, you know what, Jeff, I wonder if Jeff is having an affair with Miriam's friend, Marilyn Barry. Now, Miriam's dad thought so. He there, hmm. I don't know that there was anything Um, He told reporters and I'm sure the police that he was very uncomfortable with the obvious relationship between Rice and Miriam's friend. Mm. I never found anything that corroborated that they were actually having an affair while um, Miriam was alive. But later on, the two actually get married. Paquette and some other detectives thought it was very suspicious that after a week after his wife's death, he had the living room carpet professionally cleaned. No search warrant had ever been done in the home or in Rice's car. So they never could eliminate him officially as a suspect, but he was eliminated officially, if that makes sense. Like some, some people still have doubts that, you know, we didn't, we didn't exhaust all 
lead all evidence trail like okay look at all the evidence they're thinking but um he had been officially eliminated he also cooperated with police at every turn he took a lie detector test and passed it not that that means much um you know they took in consideration they called as what they he called the police you know very quickly within an hour he had always been concerned and cooperated with with them and he's like you know i have faith in the south bend police they're going to figure this out. Okay. It turns out that he did c- clean his carpets that, you know, the people in and out of his home and his son is a toddler mess. And, um, you know, the rain had washed, there was mud all over the house. And even Miriam's own mother said, you know, the floor was nasty. It needed to be cleaned. Well, yeah. And especially if they kind of were suspecting the husband, they probably didn't care that they were tracking dirt in and out. Or it's just that we're here trying to figure out who took your wife and who murdered your wife. So let's worry about the floors later. Right. Right. So but some people don't hear about that. I mean, you know, I don't know that, you know, he's very concerned about this house. He's renting it from a professor, but who knows, whatever yeah. the case, the, I mean, there were, because of the obvious relationship between Miriam's friend and she was their babysitter. Like when she did aerobics or, you know, when she was selling Mary Kay or whatever, then this Maryland woman would babysit. Okay. They did, the two did end up marrying each other about two and a half years after Miriam's death, which is, there's nothing alarming about that. I mean, the man has no. to have his life, you know. Yeah. Uh, and that happens a lot with people who. It, but, you know, it created a stir in the community and they were harassed and, you know, he would get notes and things like that, murder, wife killer, and Jesus. people would just miss, miss people. <clears throat> so he ended up applying for a job at a university in Columbus, Ohio. And he did, he got a job at the career center there where he and Marilyn moved with James and they had two more children and that's where they are today as far as I know. Okay. Now there were a few other suspects that cropped up in this investigation. There was a guy that showed up at the detective bureau and he's like, I want to help with this investigation. The man told the detective that Miriam's murder was a terrible thing and he wanted to help. Now, the, now police already knew this guy from other incidents. He was issued a, a no trespass order from the hospital because he would just go there every day and walk the halls and walk into patients' rooms. And the hospital's like, you know, you can't be here. So they had to put a complaint, I guess, a no trespass order. He lives in the same area where the Rices lived. Okay. The man also had several other inde- indecent exposure complaints and he had a history of mental illness. Mm, okay. uh, yeah. And he, when the police said, you know, what, what kind of car do you own? He's like, I don't own a car, but when they did a records check, it did reveal that he owned one, an older model, larger car, but they never found it. They could never find this car. It simply disappeared. Uh, most mm. likely maybe the man's car was stolen. I you know, who knows where the car is. It's probably yeah. junked in some yard right now in the back of somebody's backyard. Yeah. There was another guy that, oh, that was seen walking in the Park Avenue area, and he was noted for his necklace, which was quite unique. It was a ball-peen hammer hanging from a leather cord, which seems rather heavy, doesn't it? Like the whole hammer? The whole hammer. A ball-peen hammer hanging from a leather cord, yes. Yeah, that's a little unnerving. Uh, Right? Um, But (laughs) it proved not to be him. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, and numerous tips came in at Crime Stoppers. There were two in particular that I'm going to um, talk about right now. One of those calls came in on June 28th. Then the other came the day after her body was found. The anonymous tipster named a George Kearney and Barbara Brewster, saying that they were at Pinhook Park around the time that Rice went missing. The anonymous person said that Kearney wanted to skip town because he had killed somebody. And then Rice's body was found near the lagoon 
uh, Penhook Lagoon on that date. Uh oh. None of the tips and none of the suspects panned out, and the case went cold for almost 30 years. The South Bend. 30 years? 30 years, yes. Oh, my word. About 27 years, yes. The South Bend Tribune printed a story about the cold case, and it was an excellent article. I cannot remember the guy's name who wrote it. I'm so sorry. It is in the show notes. And I got a lot of the details about the suspects off of his article. Now, all this, I also learned that they continued, the Crime Stoppers continued to get tips on Miriam Rice's murder throughout the years. One was in 2000 and it provided three names, but they were cleared and the case stayed cold for another 16 years. All that time, the case was pushed around from one agency to another. So first it's with the South Bend Police Department. Then in 1993, it's reassigned to Special Crimes Unit in St. Joseph County. And then there it went cold for 22 years. In 2015, they formed a cold case squad that was made up mostly of retired volunteers, some of whom actually worked the case earlier in their careers. Oh, so they probably had, I mean... I could see them being much more invested. You know, maybe this is the one that keeps them up at night or whatever. And actually some of them said, and I left off a lot of their story because um, it was way too long. If I focused on that, there are a lot of great stories that Mm -hmm. highlight the detectives that highlight the other people in it. All those things are in the show notes. I'm just kind of glossing over maybe the summary of the story, but okay. yeah, right. there were some guys that this was the case that kept them up at night. Uh, These guys took over the investigation. They, they were revisiting leads. They were re-interviewing people. Somehow on March 9th, 2016, working on cold cases, when a 76 year old guy walks in and says that he knows who killed Miriam Rice. Yeah. Guess what his name is? George Kearney. Now, if you remember back to about 27 years ago, someone called Crime Stoppers and left his name. Yes. Thomas Tip. He told investigators that in 1988, he and his girlfriend, Barbara Brewster, and her three kids were camping at Penhook Park when he took Brewster and her one son, Bobby, and they left the campsite. She has her three children. The oldest is seven. Then the next is six. And then the baby is two. Kearney tells police that that he and Barbara Brewster just take the middle son and they leave the seven-year-old to babysit the two-year-old at the camp. Okay. Just chew on that for a minute. Okay. Okay. Mm. They were, he says that they were just sitting in his van near the lagoon when they saw Miriam Rice and her dog come running along Penhook Park's pavilion. Kearney said it was at that time that Barbara Brewster got something out of a black bag, jumped out of the van and ran after the woman. He said they disappeared into the dark. He didn't see them. Neither was visible. But after a few seconds, he started hearing screaming. He said that just a few minutes later, Barbara Brewster came back. She's out of breath and her hands are covered in blood. He's like, she just walked straight to the lagoon, bent down and started washing the blood off of her hands. Okay. So many questions. This is his, this is, this is his initial when he first walked in. Okay. Walks in, he tells a story and, and officers are like, okay, wait, can this be true? Because, you know, they're going to begin investigating and they're going to keep him in the room and they're going to do their thing. Mm-hmm. behind the scenes to figure this out a couple of the detectives knew kearney from years back 27 years ago or 27 years back he had been arrested about a month after miriam rice's murder on an unrelated matter okay he had only just been released from prison for that incident so police oh. were like okay why the hell are you coming forward with this now yeah out of prison 
Kearney told them that Paula Brooks, who was Barbara Brewster's daughter, remember she was seven at the time of the camping trip, was sending him letters in prison questioning his involvement in the crime. Kearney's like, you know, I want to clear the air because she's threatening to tell the police something and she wasn't even there. Um, He said Mm -hmm. in her letters, Brooks questioned his involvement in Rice's death. She threatened to take her suspicions to the police and he wanted to be the first to be able to tell police what happened. You know, tell I want to tell you the truth about what happened. Okay, so okay, just are you going to tell me why this lady's all of a sudden bringing it up after so many years? Yes. Okay. Okay. So, like I said, Kearney had only just been released from prison. He served 27 years of a 40-year sentence for three counts of felony child molestation. Ew. All right. So you know that you can't really find information on child molestation because they don't publish the child's name right or anything i mean you'll find you know so this is information on the perpetrator this is my guess and i don't know if i'm right okay okay so you asked me why did this woman start writing him letters at this time and i think it's because she knew that he was about to be released from prison and i think that it's because the reason she took her their little brother in the van was possibly for child molestation okay yep so what i'm saying is that i could not if you um you know said where did you get that information i am making a very educated inference informed guess about this because you cannot find information on who was molested what happened Based on what I've read, that's that's my guess why she came forward. Or maybe she was molested as well. And that's a possibility. All right. Now, George Carney's story was that his girlfriend at the time, Barbara, Barbara had killed the woman. But could he be believed? Of course, he's a felon. He's just recently been released from a 27-year prison sentence for three counts of child molestation. He's also it- suffering terminal cancer. So now he's out on the streets. He doesn't get the medical care. So who knows what his motivation is for coming to the police? It Hmm. is true that her, that Barbara Brewster's daughter was writing him letters. That is true. Now he told detectives that Brewster's daughter had sent him a few letters while he was in prison, telling him to come forward or she's going to turn him in herself. And he said that he had nothing to do with killing Miriam Rice. He placed 100% of the blame on Brewster, though Hmm. he admitted to being at the scene. Now they can't prove, police can't prove what's going on, but guess what? The cold case now has a bunch of names. So they yes. have Barbara Brewster and now they have her daughter and her son and her daughter's name is Paula Brooks. And as much as I really hate to say the son's name, I'm going to you because it's out there. Yeah. Um, name is Bo- Bobby South. Okay. What happened to Miriam, the young pro- <laughs> pregnant mother? Why was she beaten to death on that fateful night? And who did it? Because there are a lot of versions of this event of the night. And I don't think any one of them is 100% true because I know the adults are definitely not telling the truth. Okay. And then you have the child, the adults now who are testifying, who are about to testify, who are adults, but they're remembering childhood memories, if that yeah. makes sense, which can always be iffy testimony, right? I mean, yeah. Sometimes now I think about memories. I'm like, did that really happen? Or, right. was that a dream? or am I or... remembering this event correctly? Or yeah. you know, for example, and I'm going to give you a couple of examples where they try, try to question the, the child's memories. What I do know is that possibly the children at the time, we know that they had childhood trauma. And if their story, 
I, I believe their story over everything. And I'm thinking maybe they don't remember a lot of the awful parts of it. I mean, that seems like something that they would want to forget. Absolutely. And that if it, your brain does that to you. Absolutely. It does. It, it does protect you. So, uh, so police now have enough to uh, look for Barbara Brewster and she's moved. She lives in Alabama, Weaver, Alabama. Do you know where that is? Weaver. Weaver, Alabama. I don't know. I think, I don't know where that is. Is it near Birmingham? I want to say, I think it is. I think I looked it up, but I can't remember. Okay. Yeah. I think it's like close to Northern Alabama. Yeah. So she, um, of course, you know, detectives track her down and she comes in. She, yeah. She's like, yeah, I was there. I was there when she was killed, but she said, I didn't do it. He did. Oh, Lord. She denied any direct involvement in the murder. She said that Kearney overpowered Rice and knocked her unconscious in the van. Brewster then said, said that Kearney drove her and that he drove her back, her and the children back to the campsite and dropped them off. She said that when she got out of the van, Miriam Rice was alive but unconscious. And then Kearney left and came back about 15 minutes later without Miriam Rice. Hmm. Okay. Also about this time while that they're also looking at the cold case, the old tips. And they're like, yeah, okay. Kearney and Brewster's names were two of those Crime Stopper tip sheets. That led them to the daughter, Paula Brooks, who then connected them to the brother, Robert South. And then the case had its first major breakthrough in almost three decades. Um, they do take Barbara Brewster. She does go to trial for this. All right. Okay. One of the guys who testified was Sam Walsh. He worked for Crime Stoppers in 1988. And he testified that on June 28th and the 30th, tips were received that said Kearney and Brewster were at Pinhook Park around the time that Rice went missing. Mm-hmm. On June 24th, Walsh said that the anonymous person went on to say that Kearney said he wanted to skip town because he killed somebody. Yes. During her trial, nobody asked if the tip, uh, nobody asked if anyone investigated the tip at the time. Like this, so nobody's asked, well, did you guys investigate it? So we don't know if they ever investigated those tips okay what we do know is that the defense kept stressing that brewster's name was not listed as the suspect just as she was there so he's trying to say oh well she wasn't listed as suspect mm-hmm. it was later revealed that the person who called in was her sister helen parton hmm. now helen says she made the first two initial calls anonymously she didn't want she wanted to remain anonymous that's why she never went to a detective she thought if she gave them enough hints they would figure it out and of course they didn't that's terrible uh-huh. she tried she, well she's she, probably I scared know. of them i don't know that she tried enough yeah i mean she might have been scared i mean i don't i don't know I don't know why she wouldn't have just. Well, I mean, you know, I'm villainizing her, but I will say that she ended up raising uh, those children. She said that her and her family had lived with the deep, dark secret of Rice's murder for almost 30 years because both Paula and Bobby were traumatized. She said, especially Bobby, who was in really bad shape. So that's why I'm thinking that something happened to him while he was in the van, maybe before the incident. And I'm thinking, well, maybe Rice heard something and came up to the van that's speculation on my part yeah i was just thinking the same thing though maybe she that's saw something and that's, and why, that's they why they felt like they had to to kill her mm-hmm. that is speculation i don't know um all i know is what was in the testimony right helen brewster's sister told investigators that brewster and kearney dropped paula the seven-year-old girl off at the house after they left the campsite she said that when Paula came in, she was very upset. She kept like rambling and crying and talking about screaming and blood everywhere. Now, at first, um, Patron wasn't sure she believed the seven-year-old Paula. 
But then later that day, she saw in the news that Miriam Rice had been missing. And that's when she called Crime Stoppers back in 1988. Well, and the original story that this Kearney guy was saying was that only the five-year-old was there, but obviously. So you're going to hear the, that what Paul is, how Paula knows. Oh, okay. Just okay. a few minutes. She okay. wasn't actually in the van, but yeah, you're right. Okay. okay. Um, she said that she called Crime Stoppers to report what her seven-year-old niece had told her. And when nothing ever came of those tips, she just believed that police maybe didn't believe Paula because you know, she's only seven-year-olds or maybe that they investigated it, whatever. Patron also noted that her sister and Kearney were both on probation at the time, and they were both questioned by their probation officer about the homicide. She said it didn't do any good. He let them go, and that was the end of it. So I'm not sure how she knew that information. Maybe okay. her sister said, yeah, they asked me about it. I don't know. Possibly. Now, investigators finally spoke with Paula Brooks, who was seven at the time of Rice's murder, and she's like, 30 38 or 39 30 she might be 37 now because he was yeah she's 37 she never forgot what happened during that camping trip with her mom her brothers and kearney which is why she wrote to kearney while he was in prison she wanted him to admit what he had done to rice she told detectives that her mom and kearney left her at the campsite to babysit her two-year-old brother when they took when they left with her six-year-old brother bobby saying that they were leaving to go get food uh. So why would you leave a seven and a two-year-old and take the six-year-old? Well, maybe he wasn't in little girls and he wasn't into two-year-old. Well, and that's suspect. And that's what I'm saying. Like, I think that this is a little bit deeper than what I found anywhere. Uh, about two hours later, seven-year-old Paula is still there. It's dark. It's like, what, what time did I say? It's between 10, 30, 11 o'clock yeah. in the evening. And all of a sudden, Paula starts hearing a woman blood curdling screams from across the lagoon um, so she's hearing this woman screaming bloody murder she's all alone in the woods with a baby i mean i could not imagine her fear i would be a basket case now a short time later her mom her brother and kearney pull in they get out of the van and she sees they're covered in blood paula said that her mom ordered her to clean up her brother who was blood everywhere and she said he was so traumatized that he would only say something bad happened. Brooks said that her mom then told her to take her brother's clothes to Kearney to the burn pile along with her own clothes so that they could burn it. And in the van, her mom also ordered Brooks to clean out the van, which was full of blood with a bra and an earring, which was also put in the burn pile. Remember when I said they tried to question the childhood memories? Uh-huh. When Brewster was on the stand, she said that she had the clothes burnt because the boy peed his pants uh -huh. so that's why they burned the clothes not because they had blood on it you don't burn your clothes when you pee in them no i mean i guess you don't that never makes sense now brooks said that her brother who um bobby who was six at the time never ever ever spoke about what happened that night like he never talked about it but thankfully he finally does and that's how miriam and her family now have justice okay so now this is his story and it's most likely the closest to the actual truth based on his memory. Okay. So when he finally came forward, by the way, he didn't want to come forward. And uh, his father figure was a minister and kind of convinced him to come forward. And when he finally did that, investigators finally had enough to arrest his mom and George Kearney for Mary Rice's murder. Good. Kearney pled guilty immediately. And so he's in jail awaiting sentencing and he dies. So he, he's dead. He died of cancer. Yeah. 
Barbara Brewster pled not guilty and she did go to trial and her own children testified against her. So this is um, what her son testified. He stated that he had been traumatized by Rice's murder his um, entire life, that he never spoke a word of what he saw because Kearney threatened to kill him if he did. And he said that South said that he was in the van with his mom and Kearney when Kearney saw Rice walking a dog, he pulled over and approached her. South said he heard the dog yelp and run off. Then Kearney grabbed Rice by her hair and dragged her in. He said Rice fought Kearney until he smashed her head against the side of the van and forced her in. So he bashed her head into the side of the van. South said that Kearney then ordered his mom to kill the woman. So Kearney gets in the driver's seat. He's like, you need to kill her now. South testified that Kearney told her that she didn't kill Rice. He's going to kill her. But then he's also going to kill Brewster and the three children. South said that this is when he saw his mom continually beat Miriam Rice in the head with some tools while a substantial amount of blood was splashing about the van, including on him. He further testified that his mom... What? Yeah. Yeah, he's watching this. I said, oh my God. Mm -hmm. Um, He testified that his mom... So he's asked a question and he does admit that, you know, his mom has always sucked as a mom. Like she's the worst, been a terrible mom. But that night she was his savior because if she didn't do what Kearney ordered, they would all be dead right now. He claims that she was forced to kill. Mm, God, and you'll do anything for your babies. Yeah, but he's driving Um, the car. Why not? I mean, if you really honestly, God, I know, right? Well, he's driving. I mean- there you're in a van, are, you're likely, you're gonna, so ugh. his aunt, Helen, um, Brewster's sister believes otherwise. She told reporters, if you ask me, my sister is guilty. So is George. She's something and he is pure evil. Barbara Brewster was found guilty of murdering Rice and she was sentenced to 60 years. That's great news. But, you know, overall, I think the story is so heartbreaking, right? Yes. And um, shame on those people who were being um, ugly to the man, to the husband and his new wife. One of the investigators on the cold case was familiar with the childhood trauma that these kids dealt with. He did tell a reporter that he knew the kids from an incident a long time ago. He said, I found them locked in their mom's basement and licking the condensation off the water softener for liquid. All right. Can you imagine? Holy shit. So, I mean. No. What a fucking piece of shit. I did. I left out a lot of stuff about, you know, the, um, her sister raising the kids and some of the horrible things that they went through. Um, I can't imagine how hard it must've been for her because you know, with, you know, with childhood trauma, the things that kids say, do experience. I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, he's an adult when he testified, he even said, you know, I mean, he's a dark person. He, of course he's, you know, he suffers. So it's not over for him. It took guts for, for Paula to speak up, to get to the truth. I mean, without yeah. her, none of this would have come out, but without him testifying against his own mom and revealing his secrets, mm. you know, I don't know if he revealed secrets about anything and I'm not sure if he's the kid right. that was molested. I, I can't say that indefinitely. Right. You know, and also, like you said, I feel awful for Jeff Rice, his wife's pregnant. They're excited about their unborn child. They have a three-year-old son he's got a great job and his wife is ripped from his world out of nowhere and he is treated he is harassed by his community his church where you go for consolation um his colleagues his neighbors he had to leave to get yeah you know 
Um, I did ostracized. Yes. I found him on Facebook. Okay. Oh, you did. Yeah. And he looks so happy. Like it looks like he and his family, they've lived a great life. Um, so yeah, I mean, at least he's found happiness. I'm thankful for that. Well, good. Yeah. I'm also thankful that Miriam's parents and siblings, you know, that Miriam has finally gotten justice. Her absence has left a huge hole. Thanks to Paula and Bobby, she's got some justice. Wow. Well, I mean, it does take bravery to face your demons, you know, and those are your demons when you have that trauma. I mean, that takes and, and they a, had a lot. She had lived that all her life. So, you know, what triggered her to start writing him the letters? Maybe it was because she learned he was about to get out. Probably because they notify. Or maybe she just got to that point in her life where she just was ready to, for the truth to come out for her brother. She did mention that she was so concerned about her brother and all of this and, you know, that she wanted him to heal. And well, and I, you know, I, I just can't imagine that with that kind of trauma, even if he wasn't sexually abused, he watched someone get murdered as a five-year-old, yes, six-year-old. And I can't imagine that you had any kind of well-adjusted normal life. Well, no, not if you're locked in the, in the basement with no food, no water, or, you know, you're yeah. moved around from, from your aunt to you. Good for her. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm surprised I had never heard of this one, honestly. And it had been done, I'm sure, quite a few documentaries. And I don't know if it's been done like on Unsolved Mysteries or any of those, but yeah. I'm sure that it probably has, but, you know, especially now that they've solved it, you know, they probably went back, but golly. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Mercedes. Hey, you're welcome. It was a doozy. Yeah. And thanks all of you for joining us this week. We appreciate sharing our passion with you. And we thank you for your support. If you'd like to support us even further, please consider subscribing to our podcast and giving us a five-star rating and a comment. Your subscription and ratings are essential to our success. You can do this on your favorite platform. And for more information and links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages, visit our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com. Yes. And please recommend It Wasn't Me to your true crime loving friends and family. Also, thank you to our Patreon supporters. You are the extra. You too can become one of our beloved patrons by signing up at patreon.com forward slash it wasn't me pod. Thanks again, guys. And remember, it wasn't wasn't me. me.